We'll hear argument uh, next today in case 1756-39, Chavez-Meza versus United States. Mr. Coberly. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Judicial discretion is not a whim. It is to be guided by sound legal principles and subject to meaningful appellate review. And if appellate review for abuse of discretion is to mean anything, it is axiomatic that there must be a reason for the district court's decision apparent in the record. This is particularly true where Congress has channeled the exercise of a district court's uh, discretion by directing the district court to consider certain factors when making a discretionary choice. As the court understood in Taylor, a district court in such circumstances must clearly articulate not only that it considered, in fact, considered the relevant factors, but how those factors impacted its uh, decision. I, I suppose you're not arguing that that's true in every case. For example, if the record or the proceedings indicated exactly what the people were talking about, they were debating a particular point, and that would explain it, that would be enough, right? Mr. Chief Justice, we do believe that it would be enough. There's oftentimes, as the Court recognized in Rita, uh, how much uh, explanation a district court judge needs to give depends so much on circumstances and context. And op- what is the standard of review that the Court of Appeals uses for, sentence, for sentences? Justice Ginsburg, it, it, it's, it's, it's reasonableness, which this Court understands in the original sentencing context. I mean, thought that doesn't the statute say 3742 imposed in violation of law? The question is whether the sentence is imposed in violation of law? Yes, Your Honor. And as the Court has understood in, in from Booker through Rita through Gall, ultimately what that means is was the, was the uh, sentence reasonable? And there's two components, the procedural reasonableness and substantive reasonableness. And ultimately this Court has understood that what, what reasonableness means is did the district court abuse its discretion? But how could that be if the, the district court sentenced within, within the guidelines, it wasn't the same range, uh, I mean, it wasn't the same point within the guidelines as the original sentence, but it was still within the guidelines. So how could a within-the-guidelines sentence be imposed in violation of law? Well, I think that's the government's position, which is, well, in a sentence reduction, when it's reduced and it falls within the guidelines, the government's position, as I understand it, is essentially that that decision is re- unreviewable, and, and we disagree with that, that proposition. Um, no matter what, as the Court has made clear in Gaul, um, within guideline sentences, outside guideline sentences, um, the district court has an, has an obligation to explain the reason for the sentence. And that holds, we believe, in the, in the sentence reduction context of 3582C2. How much of an explanation would, would be required? Let's say, take this very case. What, what, what explanation would have sufficed? Your Honor, we believe what would have sufficed. I don't want to prejudge the case and tell the district court. I don't want to presume what the district court was thinking, because that's the whole point, is we simply don't know. And so what we're asking is, is for the court to apply the rule that is already applied uh, in Rita and Gaul, and that's it's simply sufficient explanation to allow 
for meaningful appellate review. Suppose a case, not this case, suppose a case where the judge sentenced to the middle of the guideline, of the old guideline range, then the new guideline range comes down and he does the middle of that. Explanation required? In a, in a typical case, Your Honor, I think in that situation, that would be what we're calling a proportional reduction. All things considered, that would be uh, — it could be inferred from the record why the judge did what he did. However, I think there are certain circumstances in that particular situation where the judge might need to provide more explanation, and that would be where either party, either the, the defendant or the government, had made non-frivolous arguments as to why uh, there needed to be something different. But in the, in the typical, in the run-of-the-mill, in, in a mine-run case, I, I do believe that that would be sufficient. And there are tens of thousands of these hearings a year? Well, uh, of course, it depends on when the guidelines are changed. Exactly, Your Honor. And, and I believe the <coughs> Sentencing Commission estimated that, there, that this particular amendment, 782, affected over 46,000 uh, prisoners. Does that — should that uh, be a factor in our decision, i.e., the obvious workload on the federal courts? We are, I think or it, is that something we don't consider? Well, I think it's certainly something you, you can consider, and I would ask the Court to consider this. We're not asking for anything, really, that the district court is not already — should be doing, and that is considering the, considering the sentence reduction in light of the 3553A factors in Section 1B1.10 of the guidelines, and then — coming to a reasoned decision as, as to why it's, it's imposing a particular reduced sentence. All we're asking for is simply the district court to jot down a few words in most instances as to how that reasoning is. So we I don't, don't quite understand in, in practical terms <coughs> excuse me, what that would mean. So what if the court goes through each of the 3553A factors and says, well, you know, as to A, it's a serious offense, and it's serious enough to warrant a sentence of 114 months. And uh, we need to have adequate deterrence, and I think 114 months is the amount that you need for adequate deterrence and so forth. Would that be enough? It's so, it so much depends on context, Justice Alito. And in that particular case, I don't think it would be enough without, without more information um, in the record, that that, that that explanation by the district court um, would be tied to a particular fact within the record. But let me just tell you, given the workload numbers you've just cited uh, and your answer to Justice Alito, I'm becoming less convinced of your case. Justice Kennedy, we — our concern is that um, a simple check let's, — let's say, for instance, the AO247 form — which, which we think is perfectly fine, had a, had, a, had a checklist of the 35-3A factors, and all that was required was a judge to check a box that he considered or he or she considered those factors. That, we don't think that would be enough. There needs to be just something minimal in the record. I'm sorry. I just don't understand what minimal means if you're answering uh, Justice Alito the way you did, which is I can't imagine needing anything more than a judge saying, I'm going to grant a reduction, but given the seriousness of this crime and how and what you did, I think whatever number he picks, why that would become unreasonable or subject to more explanation. And, and that's why I think, I mean, just a few words can matter, Justice Alito. But you said to Justice Alito, no. Well, I, I'm asking, that, that's shocking to me, to be frank with you, because that answer would mean 
that the judge not only has to say the crime was serious, what you did was serious, but I think 108 is not enough because it's the bottom of the guideline range. I don't think the guideline range should control. I mean, what more of an explanation does a judge have to do than to say it was a serious crime, 114 is the right amount? I think just some indication that the judge actually had considered that particular crime. Um, And so simply, all I'm saying is simply just saying, I don't want to say that — I don't want to create a rule that a district court judge in, in any instance — I'm afraid that you keep answering you're creating a rule that makes it impossible for district court judges to do anything but what you want. And, and I certainly and, I certainly don't want that, Justice Sotomayor. Well, but that's where it's coming. But let's start at um, here. We know the district court at the original sentence said, I'm troubled by this crime and the degree of your participation in it. It's a serious crime. Um, you were a very active participant in it. Um, he still gave him essentially the low end of the guideline. But why is it unreasonable for us to infer that in the resentencing he picked 114 because he remained concerned about the seriousness of this crime and your defendant's participation in it? Your Honor, if, if the district court judge in this particular case had said something to that effect of, I have looked at this case again in considering the seriousness of the, the drug trafficking and tied it specifically, just said a word that, that made it clear that that was tied specifically to that case, and I remain convinced that 114 months is reasonable, I think in that situation that would be plenty. Since the guidelines are advisory, what — would make it improper for the judge to say, I don't care what the guidelines say. I think trafficking of this type is serious. And I think that 114 months is the right amount for for the seriousness of the crime and deterrence. How could you appeal that? I don't — we would have a tough time appealing that, Your Honor. I think that's well within the right of the district court. I I guess my — I'm — have a great deal of understanding that having the judge say something makes sentencing appear to the public as being less than arbitrary. Um, and there is a value in explanation that, that, that the justice system should consider. The question is how much and why checking off a box is not enough. Because I take the judge at his or her word that when they check off the box, they've done what 3553A, I think it is, requires. But is there a difference between (coughs) checking off a box and not checking off a box? I think there is a difference, Your Honor. And and it's the fact of an articulation that — one can be convinced, one understands that the district court judge actually thought about this case and considered it. And simply checking a box, I don't think, does enough. We, we say it is, it is — Go ahead, please. It, it is not — we're not asking for much. And contrary to what the government has claimed that we're asking for, which is uh, detailed or extensive explanations, we are — I want to assure the court we are not. We're simply asking for just a, a bare minimal enough — to, to convince um, the, an appellate court 
that there was a reasoned basis for the decision. And, Sorry. Justice Sotomayor, like you, like you just said, the need to assure the public that our, our judiciary is acting on, on with sound legal principles and applying the law and not making arbitrary decisions. It doesn't have to be much. What if he just says same, re- same reasons as before? Mr. You know, Chief. Before he's done a fairly, you know, the usual what's required in 3553, and those are the same, what he's saying, those are the same things that, is, that are motivating him in this new context. Same reasons as before. Well, I think in this particular case, Mr. Chief Justice, if, if the judge had said that, um, that would pose a problem because in, in this particular case, tied back to the original sentence, uh, it was clear that the district court judge had, had tied his sentence and adopted the reasoning of the sentencing commission. And he sentenced at the bottom of the guidelines. He referred to the reason the guideline sentence in this case is high is because of the type of drug and the quantity of drug. And if he simply adopted that same reasoning, then one would expect that the, his, his, his understanding of how — So you'd be fine. I mean, that's give you, you say that would give you the grounds you want to present on appeal, just as you've articulated here. So that ought to be fine as far as you're concerned. I, I think — Right. And we have to — I have to remember, we have to remember that we're talking here just about the, a procedural component, and that is simply an explanation uh, to get us to understand the judge's reasoning. So if there's, if there's some indication of the judge's reasoning, I, we would then have something to grasp onto on appeal, and maybe we would argue that on appeal. One aspect of this case uh, that strikes me as curious, so this is an appeal from the — uh, resentencing. Could could this uh, defend that in, instead of going to the court of appeal? Said uh, district judge, would you please reconsider or clarify why it was the first time round you put me in the bottom of the range and the second time in the middle? Could could have moved for clarification before the district court. Justice Ginsburg, we there, there's no there's no specific rule in the rules of criminal procedure um, that allows for that, and so this was a final order, and it was it was appealable. Now, in practice, w- could one, in theory, um, make such a request? I suppose, um, but given that there's nothing required in the rule, there is no there is no requirement that the district court has to. Um, actually reconsider that, other than just saying motion to reconsider denied. And in the context of this case, Mr. Chavez Meza had filed his motion for a sentence reduction um, under 3582C2 over a year before the, the district court judge made his decision. And under the existing law, as, as it was understood in the Tenth Circuit, we thought it was best to um, just ha- take an appeal and have it remanded back, which is all we're asking for in this instance, is to have the case remanded back to the district court for consideration of the reduction in light of the 3553A factors and to provide some explanation for its, its ultimate decision. Your Honor, our concern, Your Honors, our concern ultimately is that the government's construction of the statute would allow just this particular case um, of a class of defendants in class of cases um, um, not, not subject to appellate review at all. And there's no principal basis 
um, looking at the statute for such a rule. And as the Court understood in Dillon, the purpose of Section 3582C2 was to give prisoners the benefit of the Sentencing Commission's determination that there was a systemic problem with a particular guideline. In precluding appellate review entirely of this type of case would undermine um, congressional intent. Why would this preclude appellate review? Isn't it pretty obvious what, or couldn't the Court of Appeals infer that what the district court did was this? The district court originally thought 135 months was the right sentence. That was the original sentence, right? 135? Yes, Justice. All right. And so the district court thought, well, the, the range was lowered, uh, and so I'm going to go down to 114. But taking into account the sentencing factors, I don't think it should go below 114. I think that's the — I don't know that you need to spell all that out. And if if that's what the Court said, would that be sufficient? And if that would be sufficient, why can't there be appellate review just as — based on what was done here? I don't think in that particular case, Justice Alito, that would necessarily be sufficient because it just says, in my opinion, it does not that the, the decision does not tie that opinion somehow to the 3553A factors. Well, why doesn't it tie it to the 3553A factors? There's nothing. There isn't an algorithm that tells you how to put those factors together or to quantify each one. It's the, the judge takes into account the various factors, the serious of the offense, deterrence, and so forth, and says, this is the right number. And all we're asking for, Justice Alito, is just a little bit following that, which is why the judge thinks that's the right number. Not merely the fact that, yes, I considered the factors and this is the number I come up with, but just something to indicate why. Just I, think you'd be, I think you'd be better off with the other rule. I mean, if you have a, something that looks out of the ordinary in the, in the resentencing and the judge hasn't said anything, I think that gives you a stronger basis for appeal. Then you say, well, all he's got to do is have a couple of words. Well, a couple of words, and then you're out of, out of the appellate court. But if he doesn't say anything, you've got a stronger argument. He, he hasn't justified it. It's not that there's no basis uh, for appellate review. It's that um, you have a strong case because nothing's on the record to support what has been done. And that's exactly the position we're in because there was nothing in the record, and we felt like we had a strong case on appeal to say at least give us something. We couldn't — we were precluded um, — from, from trying to — the problem here is — No, know, but it depends on the, the range of the departure. In other words, uh, if whatever you think is what it should look like or the norm, you mentioned in your brief an argument about what, where you thought it should be proportionately. Uh, and if it's out of whack uh, and nothing is said, it seems to me you have a stronger case, then what you suggested is what you, you lose if he puts in just a few words that shows that he considered the pertinent factors. Well, it — the concern here is, is ultimately with ensuring the integrity of the process, Your Honor, and making sure that, that there was some reason that was given. And, and when, when there is no reason given, um, it, the public, and frankly my client, um, lacks confidence that that decision was actually made on the sound basis of law as opposed to Well, what is he supposed to say? He did give reasons. He says, having considered such motion, that's your motion, and taking into account the policy statements set forth at U.S. Sentencing Guideline 1B1.10, and the sentencing factors set forth in 18 U.S.C. 3553A, to the extent they're applicable, I reduce the sentence to 114 months. 
All right. He gave a reason. That's the reason. What else is he supposed to say? Well, Your Honor, we, we disagree that that's actually a reason. You know what? What else is he supposed to say? What else he, we believe he is supposed to say is because, because of the particular uh, nature of the crime here that Mr. Uh, a def- I don't want to tie it to this particular defendant, but the defendant was involved in drug trafficking. Um, there's been cases where that were similar to ours. They've been remanded back. The district court provides a simple sentence, such as given this defendant's um, uh, recidivism and his um, wrapping up two two young innocent women in this crime. I find that this well, we have in the record what what he did. That isn't a problem. And, and judges do when they choose. That's why I've never understood the part of What they do is they look at the crime and they look at the defendant and have a range here and they select the point that they think is appropriate. What else can you say besides that? Something, Your Honor, that, that ties it as to why they think it's appropriate. Well, I don't know why they say. I, I've seen a lot of cases. I, I, I see what — I look at the conduct. I look at the defendant. And this is what strikes me as appropriate. And now, what else — I mean, you could not tell that that's the truth of the matter. So what else can he say besides that that is truthful? How he or she can actually consider the 35 — He says, I considered it. But how, how do you consider it? What you do is you read it and you think about it. What else? Something tied to the particular facts of the case. So is what you're saying, Mr. Coberly, essentially that — the judge should say any lower sentence would not meet the seriousness of this crime. I mean, I think that would be helpful, Justice Kagan, but I'm not sure that that actually, those words either would actually get to our point, which is that (coughs) there needs to be something that the public can be confident that the judge actually considered this particular case. Well, that's this crime. The judge is saying, I've looked at this crime, and, and I don't — I can't imagine, given the seriousness of this crime, going below 114 months. That would be a close call, Your Honor. And, and, and it's just simply something that, that allows the, the defendant and allows the public to understand that the — yes. I don't understand why that would be a close call. I mean, what else are you supposed to say other than — I can understand why you want the judge not just to check a box — I can understand why you want the judge to say, I've looked at the seriousness of this crime. I think it going below 114 months would not be in keeping with the seriousness of this crime. What else do you want a judge to say? Something about the seriousness of the crime tied to the particular facts of that crime to ensure that the judge is actually considering and making a reasoned decision. You you seem to be... uh, um having some kind of a presumption that the reduction should be proportional. So if the original sentence was at the low end, the reduced sentence should be at the low end. But what statutory provision requires proportionality? Thank you. Justice Ginsburg, our our argument regarding proportionality, we're not arguing, I want to make clear, we're not arguing that there should be a proportionality. We're simply recognizing that when when there is proportionality um, and the record is silent, we think that in the mine run of cases, <coughs> one, can, one can rest assured that the district court judge here um, simply applied the exact same reasoning that it applied at the original sentencing context to the, the amended guidelines range. Um, 
So, for instance, um, you know, if someone was sentenced at the top end of the guidelines, there was no new information that was presented by either party in the sentence reduction motion, and the district court judge, in a silent order, adjusted the, the sentence to the top of the amended guidelines range, we think that that would be sufficiently clear in the record. What if it was the, I think a lot of your objection, and a lot of the appeal of your objection is the boilerplate. What if the judge had actually, you know, written it out? I mean, it seems the way you're saying it, the, the actual cons- language, he says, I've taken into account the policy statement. I've taken into account those factors. To the extent they're applicable, this is what I think. I think if you had seen that in order, written out, you know, that based on what you said, that would seem to be sufficient. I, it, it seems to me your objection is, you, you don't, in other words, you don't, you don't really believe it when it's just a check in the box. You think, well, he really hasn't done that. He's just checking the box. But what would be wrong with the language that he's checked uh, in the absence of the, the boilerplate aspect? As you, I think, that, I think, Your Honor, that we would have the same problem. It's not with the fact that it's preprinted on a form. It, it's, it's that there was no additional reasoning. And, and in this case, the AO247 form has a spot on the second page uh, for additional comments. Like what? You, have you had a lot of experience probably with sentencing cases, much more than I have? All right. So uh, let's take an original sentencing, and the reason there's discrim- there's, uh, there is a discretion within the range is because what judges used to do and typically do is they just decide. You know, there's there's nothing you can say. All right. So, but they're supposed to. So, what do they say? What kinds of things? They say, Justice Breyer. Similar. I mean. At an original sentencing, there's arguments typically presented by both sides as to a particular sentence. Um, and, and tying it to this case, the government actually made an argument as to 135 months. And the district court judge said the reason the guideline sentence is high in this case is because of the quantity of drugs, the type of drugs. I consider, in my experience, that the, the, mm-hmm. um, the problem with methamphetamine, and I'm adopting essentially the district court's decision. That's all they say, and that's enough. And if I may um, reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. General Rosenstein. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are three reasons why this Court should uphold the District Court's discretionary decision to grant a sentencing reduction and to impose a new sentence in the bottom quartile of the applicable sentencing guideline range. The first reason is about judicial integrity. When a federal judge issues an order stating that the court considered the relevant statutory factors, appellate courts presume that the district court did precisely what it said. The second reason is the background principle. In the absence of a statutory mandate, federal judges are not required to provide reasons for imposing a sentence within the lawful range. And the third reason is the statutory text. Congress chose not to deviate from the background rule and require a statement of reasons for a sentence reduction motion under Section 3582C2, in contrast to the express requirement in Section 3553C, and this Court should respect Congress's judgment. What if the uh, judge is, uh, has had you know, 600 of these uh, resentencings every time? just checks the box. 600, he's done nothing but check the box, and the results are a little low. Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. You can't really tell why. you have the same position? Your Honor, we, uh, we believe that the premise there that the district court is merely checking a box is a mistake. 
The form reflects what the district court is required to do by statute. Uh, and so there's no reason to presume here that the court is checking a box and not actually doing even if it's required. Even if he's done it 600 times, never done anything but check the box, you still presume that he's giving the careful consideration in each of those cases? Well, in no case, Your Honor, is the court merely checking a box. The court is checking a box indicating whether it's granting or denying the motion. But then it's actually required to compute the guideline range and then select a, a new sentence. And so it's not merely a matter of checking a box. The court is actually making a conscious decision about what sentence to impose within that new guideline General, range. do you have a different position with respect to a denial of a motion for a reduction? If a judge just says, sign this form, and, but denied the reduction, would you hold the same position? Your Honor, there have been different uh, variations of this form. The form that's used in this case, we believe, would clearly suffice, because the form — No, no, no. Take my fact situation. Yes. Judge denied — basically denies, after looking at everything, I deny this motion for a reduction. With or without — Does that permit no um, intelligent appellate review? Your Honor, uh, if the Court had completed the form and checked the box indicating it had denied the motion, the Court would have certified by signing that form that the Court had gone through the appropriate considerations, that is, it considered the 3553A factors and considered the policy So state. how about if a judge in the original sentence gives the low end of the guideline, um, but in the, um, in the revised reduction — gives above the original guideline but below the sentence he gave now. Um, Would that require more of an explanation than signing this form? No, Your Honor, we don't believe it would because that would be a lawful sentence within the guideline range specified by the Commission and would reflect, uh, as this Court said in Rita, the presumption, pardon me, that in the typical case uh, the Court has determined, essentially has adopted the reasoning of the Commission and has done what the judge is supposed to do. The one thing I hate about absolute rules in this area, dislike intensely, is that why shouldn't we trust the Court of Appeals to determine how much information it needs or doesn't need to give meaningful appellate review? Some courts have said, if you refuse to depart completely, you should explain why. Others have said, but if you don't and you pick a sentence within the guidelines, we will infer um, that you've said enough if you sign the form. Others have said you should always give a little bit more. Another car- ca- category of Court of Appeals have done what the Tenth Circuit has done, but I think there's only two that have done what the Tenth Circuit has said. Um, why isn't it always up to the Court of Appeals to determine how much it needs to determine whether adequate review can be given? Well, Your Honor, the, <clears throat> this Court in Gaul indicated that with regard at least to departures, Courts of Appeals may but are not required to impose a, a presumption uh, of reasonableness. Uh, but with regard to the issue of what the Court of Appeals is required to do, I think, y- Your Honor, you're correct. The Court of Appeals looks to the record and makes a determination whether or not, based on the entire record. Look, looking at this record, do you know why the district judge did what he did? I believe and, we And do I know what? I'm not sure why the district judge did what he did. I can guess. 
Justice Kennedy, I believe we know just as well uh, following the sentence reduction motion as we did following the original sentencing. And, in fact, if the Court looks to the joint appendix at page 26, the original sentencing hearing, uh, which I believe is a typical sentencing hearing, the District Court uh, said that it had considered the appropriate factors and selected a sentence of 135 months. Now, the defendant has not indicated, he uh, uh, has not confirmed how much information he thinks he needs. But if you look to that original well, sentence. Do you think that in that original sentence it was because it was, the sentence was at a particular place in the guidelines, i.e. the low end? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. Keep in mind, of course, we're in a post-Booker context here. The district court is guided in part by the guidelines, but is required to consider all the relevant 3553A factors. And at the original sentencing, that's precisely what the court said. The court said he had taken into account the history and characteristics of the defendant and the need to impose a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary to achieve the purposes of sentencing. That is a somewhat conclusory. But that, that, that's true in every case. But Correct. why this number? Why wasn't, why wasn't this? A, if, if he'd have done it at the low end of the new revised guideline range, that would have been okay, wouldn't it? Yes, With, sir. Without any explanation? Correct. Well, then why isn't an explanation required here when he does something different? Because of the background rule, Your Honor. Again, this, the sentencing uh, uh, guidelines were adopted in 1984 against a backdrop of longstanding precedent of this Court, reflected most significantly in the Dorshinsky case, where the Court indicated that in the absence of any statutory mandate, at common law, the Court, uh, district courts had discretion to impose sentences anywhere up to the statutory maximum. I guess I'm finding it a little bit hard, Mr. Rosenstein, to understand your understanding of the background rule, because my understanding of the background rule comes from Taylor, where it said, whereas here, Congress has declared that a decision will be governed by consideration of particular factors. A district court must carefully consider those factors as applied to the particular case and whatever its decision and clearly articulate their effect in order to permit meaningful appellate review. So we're in one of these whereas here situations where Congress has declared that a decision is going to be governed by uh, consideration of particular factors. And, And Taylor seems to say look, what we need for intelligent appellate review is for for the district court to clearly articulate um, why he did what he did. Now, it doesn't have to be lengthy. It can just be pointing to, you know, this was a serious crime. Uh, Here's uh, here's why, the end. But but there has to be something, says Taylor, no? Your Honor, we respectfully uh, submit that Taylor... Uh, does not apply in the context of sentencing. He didn't overrule Dorzynski. And if it had, Your Honor, we submit that Rita, well, might have come out differently because this Court ruled in Rita in 2007 that no explicit analysis is required of the 3553A factors. There are, if you break them out, there are 15 distinct factors in 3553A. And at this resentencing, there are also three additional factors established by the policy statement, 1B1. Get at the uh, beginning. I mean, there is something I don't understand about this. I I tend to agree with you that if we suddenly start saying you have, I mean, I've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of of, uh, uh, district court decisions which take the following form, motion for summary judgment, denied. Okay? Or motion for this or that, denied. And if we're suddenly going to say, well, this has to have more than that word denied, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. So I tended to follow what Justice Sotomayor said. Sometimes the Court of Appeals would say we need to know more, and sometimes they wouldn't. But I think what he's arguing, and I may be missing something, is that the statute says 
in 3553C1 that if the sentence is within the guideline range and it exceeds 24 months, the court at the time of sentencing shall state in open court the reason for imposing sentence at a particular point within the range. Now, it doesn't say that when you're reconsidering. Correct. But it does say it at the beginning. And so the background rule isn't that you don't have to give a reason. The background rule is just what I read. So how does it work? Yes. I want to know how it works. And after all, if that's the rule, if I'm right that that is the rule, how do they do it? And shouldn't you have whatever they have to do there the same here? No, Your Honor. Respectfully, uh, the background rule that I refer to is the rule in the absence of any statute. Well, here is a statute. I'm saying my question is, how does that work in the ordinary sentencing case where we've all said, gee, sometimes you just can't say more? Well, a statute seems to say more. And then if it, whatever that is, why shouldn't it be the same here? And I think what they're saying is you don't have to say it's the same if it's proportional because it's obvious. But if it isn't proportional, it isn't obvious. And so you should have to say something. Okay, so what is the yes, response? What Justice is the response? Breyer. The answer to that, Justice Breyer, is that if, with regard to sentences that are governed by 3553C, yeah. there actually are three levels of explanatory requirements. The first is the requirement to state reasons in open court, which is in yeah. 3553C. Right. The second is uh, for a sentence uh, with a range above 24 months. That's right. To provide a reason for a particular point in the range, as yes. you articulated. And the third is for a sentence outside the guideline. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm only interested in the particular point within Correct. the range. Uh, but, Your Honor, this provision, 3553, was adopted as part of the Sentencing Reform Act in mm-hmm. 1984, contemporaneously with Section 3582C. And in 3582C, the Congress decided not to incorporate the 3553 requirements. Uh, and that is why we respectfully submit the 3553C requirements do not apply uh, under 3582. It expressly incorporates 3553A, which we recognize and the district court acknowledge, but it does not uh, incorporate the procedural requirements. Now, this court affirmed that in the Dillon case. Uh, yeah, but is that peculiar? What's the reason for that? Judge, when you give a sentence of 18 to 20, you know, the, the guideline is 108 to 122 months. You pick out 114, and you have to give your reason for the particular point. But if you do precisely the same thing on resentencing, you don't. It, but, but why? And the, re, the answer, Your Honor, as articulated by this Court in Dillon, is that we are not at a formal resentencing proceeding here. We are at a motion for a reduction, which is this Court recognized in Dillon, is not governed by the uh, constitutional or remedial holding of Booker. It's an act of congressional lenity or legislative grace. And Congress, in enacting that provision, was entitled, we submit, to permit the court to do it in an expeditious way. So assume there wasn't a form um, and that the judge's real reason was that he thinks blacks who commit this kind of crime should be punished severely. How are we supposed to know or check, or the public know or check, that racism didn't uh, uh, play a part in this? I'm not assuming that any judge would do this, but I'm assuming some impermissible motive is, um, is at play. If we don't have any statement by the judge of what he or she is doing or some basic reference to why, how do we know? And, Your Honor, I would give two answers to that. 
the first is that uh, no matter what the judge says, you never know what the judge is thinking and doesn't articulate. But the second is that under Walton v. Arizona, a longstanding principle, courts presume that district courts know the law and apply it faithfully. If it were to the contrary, we would face this issue really in every case. You never know the unstated reasons. You know only the stated reasons. And in this case — But if you know no reason, which is what Justice Kennedy started with, we don't really know why he picked 114. Well, we submit, Your Honor, that you do know enough, just as in any ordinary original sentencing under Rita, you know that the Court was familiar with the facts and circumstances of the crime. You know that the Court uh, evaluated the 3553A factors and the policy statements. You have the comments the District Court made at the original sentencing, which indicated that the Court was aware the defendant had other uncharged conduct. So, so let's do a different hypothetical. The judge says, I gave the 114 because he got convicted of a prison infraction that was at the highest level. And in fact, not the facts of this case, the prison infraction was at the lowest level and didn't even result in anything except a warning. Um, How would the appellate court know that the judge made a factual assumption that was erroneous in picking that 114. In your hypothetical, Justice Sotomayor, the court has articulated that reason? Yes. Yes. Well, in that case — But what — how do we know if they don't articulate their reason for doing something that they're not — that it's not based on an erroneous factual basis? Uh, So, once again, we can't deal with what the court doesn't say, but if the court did express — No, but we should. I mean, when we're making a rule that says you never have to, as the Tenth Circuit has indicated, then we don't know if an impermissible factual or legal basis motivated the judge. And with factual, it's not intentional, it's just wrong. If there were any evidence in the record, Justice Sotomayor, to indicate that such an error had been made, the defendant would be permitted on appeal uh, to argue procedural unreasonableness, just as this Court contemplated in Gaul. If there were — uh, if your position prevails, why would any district judge ever say anything about why he's re- his position on resentencing? Well, we, d- we don't presume, Your Honor, that district courts uh, are motivated solely by the desire to be — to avoid appellate review. Uh, I believe a district no. court, as, as was contemplated in the Rita opinion, uh, it depends on the circumstances. A district court can make its judgment whether or not it believes that the facts are such that it merits a more detailed opinion. But if it's a routine, typical run-of-the-mill case, as this one was, uh, and the Court looked to the original sentencing where it had said very little, we believe it's appropriate under these circumstances for the Court to impose the appropriate sentence and simply say it had considered the factors. Well, a judge who — under what circumstances was a, would a judge who did just that uh, be subject to reversal? It would depend upon the record, Your Honor. As in all cases, the appellate court would look to the entire record. Given the presumption of regularity, which we submit is accorded in all cases, the defendant who appeals this would have to identify some error in the record, something that would merit appellate review. Well, like, like what? I'm, I'm saying the judge doesn't say anything, and you say the presumption is that he adequately considered all of the factors Correct. and all that. What type of uh, 
evidence in the record would suggest that that wasn't the case? Well, if you're talking only about procedural reasonableness, as we're talking about here, you'd look to whether the guidelines were properly considered. You would look to whether or not there were other defendants in the case who received disparate sentences. Uh, you'd have to find something in the record that indicated that there had been some impropriety in the sentencing proceeding. So as, as I understand it, in this case, let's say there, there are any number of choices, but let's say there are three choices. One, the judge just kept the original sentence. Two, he put it at the low end of the guidelines. Three, um, he put it at the high end of the new guidelines, but the, uh, the, no greater than the earlier sentence. Any one of those is okay. Any one of those is okay, Your Honor, as long as there's no, no reasons required. Well, the reasons are required. The Court is required to apply the 3553A factors in the policy statement. But in the absence of any indication the Court had failed to do that, we submit that that would suffice uh, even in an original sentencing in, under Rita. But, but in, in, in all of the circumstances on the revised, uh, after the sentencing guidelines have been revised, in my three alternatives, in none of those cases is any reason required. In, in all cases, the Court is required to have reasons pre- premised on the — None of those cases need the Court state his reasons under your view for the resentence. In, in none of those cases would it be required to cite a specific reason for a sentence within the guideline range. That's correct. And your, your understanding where the language that I read you in Taylor where it said that there is some necessity to state some amount of reasoning, what do you think that that — applies to? Your Honor, Your Honor we believe that the, the Taylor case uh, is not generalizable. Uh, and uh, as this Court said in Rita, the amount of explanation required under the guidelines depends upon the circumstances. If it were otherwise, then we — But is Taylor just about the statute in Taylor? Is that all it's about? Because certainly Taylor seems to suggest a broader rule. It said, you know, whereas here Congress has directed a district court to consider particular factors — in order to have effective appellate review, we need some brief statement about why the Court has come out the way it has based on those factors. So we believe, Your Honor, and there are two answers to that. Uh, the first is that if you look to the concluding paragraph of the Taylor opinion, the Court indicated that the trial court in that case relied on factors that were unsupported by the record. So the record itself actually indicated that there was a, an error that was made by the district court in Taylor. Uh, but with regard to the issue of what factors need to be considered, that is ultimately an issue we submit of legislative intent. Uh, and in this case, in Section 3582, Congress decided to permit an expedited pr- process uh, and not to require all the procedures that Congress created for original sentencing. There, there's, an, there's another uh, statutory section, which is 3583E, which directs courts to consider the 3553A factors, those the same factors that are involved in this case. Um, when terminating periods of supervised release. Do you think a judge can terminate a period of, of uh, supervised release and send somebody back to prison without any statement of reasons? Uh, Your Honor, I, uh, hypothetically, the Court would be printed to do that only if the record were sufficient. I'm sorry, hypothetically what? Well, in some cases, Your Honor, the record might be clear as to what the basis was, but certainly there would have to be a basis for the Court to make that decision. Well, a basis, but the question is, do you think that the Court has to state reasons to send somebody back to prison under 3583E? Your Honor, I don't have the language in front of me. I apologize. It doesn't say anything about explanation, so I'll give you the relevant things. It basically says you have to consider the 3553A factors. 
but then it does not say that you have to explain anything. So the question is whether there's a background rule yes. that says, of course, before you send somebody back to prison like that, you have to at least say something. That's the question. Yes. And, and again, Your Honor, we believe it would be a question of legislative intent. And we believe that with regard to 3582, it's clear that Congress contemplated an expedited procedure that would not incorporate the reasons required in 3553 and would simply be subject to the background rule. So can, can you tell us a, a little something about the form? Uh, what, what was the genesis of that, this administrative office uh, form, what, AO247? Correct, Your Honor. How did that come to to be. My understanding, Your Honor, is that form was developed by the uh, administrative office of the U.S. Courts, along with input from the Sentencing Commission, in order to expedite these proceedings and ensure that appropriate information was reflected in the record. Interestingly, Your Honor, the original version of the form, I believe from 2008, did not include the language clarifying that the Court had considered the 3553A factors and the policy statement. In fact, right. one of the but lower court opinions — pardon me? I, I just want to go back for a second to Taylor. My understanding is that Taylor is speaking generally in 1988, and it's considering the Speedy Trial Act. Subsequent to that, I believe we decided a case called Rita. And I thought in Rita we addressed specifically this question at an original sentencing. And what we said, yes, there has to be some explanation, but the length, the detail, when it's within the guideline, not outside the guideline, and I think that was the intent of the Commission. Outside the guideline, you better explain it. Inside the guideline, in this range, it says uh, that the statute or precedent does not insist upon a full opinion in every case. The sentencing judge should set forth enough to satisfy the appellate court that he has considered the arguments and has a reasoned basis. But uh, — the length, the detail, the content, even when to write, is basically up to the judge. Then, when the judge does that, if the appellate court needs more, it can ask for more. Now, I thought that was what Rita, but I haven't looked at it in a long time. So I thought that's what Rita was saying. And, uh, uh, if, but there's nothing, is there anything wrong with that? No, Your Honor, and I believe that's consistent with Taylor in this respect, and that is that the principle Well, I hope it was consistent, but if it wasn't consistent, it is the later case and does deal specifically with sentencing guidelines as opposed to dealing with the Speedy Trial Act. Yes, Your Honor, and I think the, 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 the point of uh, commonality is that the pr principle of Rita is that if the district court is acting within the normal range, the typical case, less explanation is required. When the court is doing something unusual, Outside the norm, more of an explanation is required. Taylor, of course, is a binary choice. The case is dismissed either with or without prejudice. Here we're talking about a range where the courts have established that any selection within that range could be a reasonable sentence. Well, that's true, but context. this case involves what the petitioner calls a disproportionality, that at the first instance you're at the low end of the range, and at the second instance you're no longer at the low end of the range. And so the question that Rita raises is, in a case like that, is something a little bit more required so that the judge says, you know what, I don't want to be at the low end of the range in, in, given this new range because of the seriousness of the offense. And the judge doesn't have to do that at length, as Rita said. Maybe the judge doesn't even have to do it in writing, as long as the judge says something to give both the defendant and the appellate court some understanding of why the judge is doing what the judge is doing. 
Yes, Your Honor. And we uh, respectfully submit that there is no magic to this concept of proportionality. This is not something that the defendant has rooted in any statutory requirement or even in any judicial finding. This idea that it needs to be proportional is simply something that uh, they're trying to sell to the court, but we submit uh, really shouldn't be. Well, it raises a question, don't you think? No, I do not, Your Honor. And the reason I do not is because the the principle here is that the guidelines are only one relevant factor. If we were in a Booker world, perhaps it would have more significance. But in a post-Booker world, it's clear that that district court, in choosing 135 months, was not merely saying, I will always pick the lowest possible. Quite right. And that's why the the court can say, I don't think — I don't want to go with the lowest uh, point in the new range. And and that's absolutely the prerogative of the district court. But the question that the petitioner raises is just whether the judge has to say, I've thought about this question, and I don't want to be at the low end of the range anymore because of the seriousness of of the offense or because of something else. Correct, Your Honor. It just seems a it's, – it's a minor requirement, but one that um, seems as though it would help the appellate court quite a lot to know why the judge had chosen a sentence that was no longer at the low end of the range. But I believe, Your Honor, that if you were to look at Rita, the, the challenge that they're posing here really would undermine the premise of Rita, which is that for a typical sentence where the court chooses a point within the range – there is no requirement for detailed elaboration of the reasons. And why would more be required in 3582, which this case has indi- this court has indicated in Dillon actually is an abbreviated proceeding, not subject to Booker? Why would the court require more under 3582 than it would under 3553 at an original sentencing? So uh, we respectfully submit that that's essentially what the defendant is asking the court here to do, is to expand the explanatory requirement, not only to the RETA standard, but even beyond it. Uh, and I think if the court were to look to the original sentencing in this case, as I indicated, I believe that would not satisfy the defendant. In fact, they, uh, they have indicated in their reply brief uh, that even the one sentence the government proposed, the clarifying sentence we proposed in our brief uh, at page 40, the defendant in their reply brief at page 19, indicates that would not be sufficient for him. So we really don't know what type of detail would be satisfactory, but we respectfully submit that uh, if you were to take their argument to the logical extreme, it would require in every case for the court to address every conceivable factor, of which, as I say, if you break them out, there are 15 just in 3553A, three additional factors added by the policy statement. And so uh, we believe, Your Honors, that uh, what the district court did here is more than sufficient. The court made clear on the record that it had considered the relevant factors under 3553A, it had considered the factors in the policy statement. The Court was familiar with the case by virtue of having handled the original sentencing uh, and uh, imposed a sentence that is reasonable uh, and for that reason should be upheld. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Coberly, you have uh, four minutes remaining. that the government suggests that Rita, or excuse me, Taylor does not apply in the sentencing context. <clears throat> the times this court has relied on Taylor, it has been in the sentencing context. This court has relied specifically on Taylor in Rita um, in stating, quote, the sentencing judge should set, sor- set forth enough to satisfy the appellate court that he has considered the party's arguments and has a reasoned basis for exercising his own legal decision making authority, CEG United States v. Taylor, 
Nonetheless, when a judge decides simply to apply the guidelines to a particular case, doing so will not necessarily require lengthy explanation. That's exactly all we're asking for, and we understand that we're not asking for a lengthy explanation, but that when Congress has channeled the exercise of the discretion of the district court judge by directing it to consider certain factors, the role of the appellate court is to ensure that the district court actually looked at those factors. It's not that it's necessarily the outcome is necessarily wrong, but that it actually applied those factors in order to comply with the directives of Congress. What would be the minimum that would suffice here? <clears throat> I think the minimum that would, be, would suffice, Your Honor, in a run-of-the-mill case is I looked — I am — if it's disproportionate, <clears throat> as it is here, the reason I impose a sentence of 114 months or whatever it is because of the seriousness of the crime of — you know, the defendants involved in methamphetamine trafficking, something to that effect. Again, I don't want to telegraph to the district court what we think. We don't want to presume because we simply don't know. Well, you're asking us to impose a standard, and and, uh, you could — I I think it's entirely fair to ask you what would be the minimum that would be required. So you gave me an answer. The judge would — if the judge made reference to methamphetamine trafficking, that would be enough? I I think if if there was something that was tied to the particular — circumstances of the case. Um, but again, I mean, the, the reality here is that's up to the appellate courts. That's up to the district court judge in the first instance, and then it's up to the, the appellate courts to determine whether that was sufficient reason to divine the, the actual reason of the district court judge. But in stating the standard, you're essentially asking us to repeat those words that you just read from Rita. Is that correct? Exactly, Your Honor. We're, we're, at, we're not asking anything different than what Rita already requires. And, Justice Alito, you, your, your site to Taylor in, in your dissent in Gaul recognized that the reason um, uh, it's important to, for a judge to state reasons to ensure that the district What Rita did say on this point, I think, point within the guidelines that applied, the whole paragraph, which you didn't really have time to read, but the paragraph there talks about sometimes a judicial opinion responds to every argument, sometimes it does not, sometimes a judge simply writes the word granted or denied on the face of the motion, other times, and the reasons make everything clear, sometimes the law leaves much in this respect to the judge's own professional judgment. You have a borderline case. I mean, I I don't know whether more should be called for, and that's why I was looking around of a way of resolving this, and it seemed to me one way to resolve it would be to say, you can write pretty minimally, but the Court of Appeals can ask for more if they need to. I think that's exactly right, Justice Breyer. You do? The the problem with the (laughs) government— But when you say minimally, you right. mean more than just check the box. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, there has to be something. There has to be something more than than just simply saying I considered the factors. There has to be something, and this is how I applied the factors. Something minimal. Um, we're, we're not asking for much. We're, we're asking for crumbs here. And I see that my time is up. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.